For rural health care to thrive, proactive representation and response in Congress is essential. So how should hospitals navigate the latest legislative decisions on health care policy and rural health budgeting? With an active understanding of representation, communication within the rural health care system, and connection with legislative leaders. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to episode 121 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Chief Communications Officer. All right, Rachel, our guest today, a favorite of ours, of course, uh, return guest, but uh, someone who understands rural hospital challenges, uh, understands uh, all the impact of congressional action uh, and subsequent representation uh, for them, and and certainly knows that the importance of representing rural hospitals outside of our spheres, Hillsdale, name, name the community, in Washington, D.C., and with congressional leaders, and someone who not only knows it, but does it so remarkably well. That's right. We are talking with someone who plays a leading role, truly, in advocating for rural health care in a legislative setting, primarily at the federal level. She is right in the heart of it, right there in Washington, Right D.C. there, right there. Our guest today is Carrie Cochran McLean, Chief Policy Officer of the National Rural Health Association. And it is such a pleasure to welcome you back to Rural Health Rising. Carrie, welcome. Thanks so much, JJ and Rachel. Um, you guys are my favorite crew to talk to. Don't tell oh, anyone. Oh man, else. we wow. should just close in prayer right now. That's so great. <laughs> I love it. I'm going I'm to put that on a plaque and okay. get it for you for your office, JJ. Thank you, please. That'd be great. I'll get one for me too. Well, the pleasure's know. all ours, Carrie, because we we do really appreciate the insight, and our listeners across the country appreciate the insight that you provide. You know, as they're struggling with some of these exact issues. Uh, and and sadly, a lack of representation, you know, in their respective hospitals. So that's why so many of us count on you. So to start, Carrie, why don't you just um, remind everyone a little bit about yourself, your background and your work at the National Rural Health Association? Sure, it's my pleasure. So um, the National Rural Health Association, for those of you who don't know us, I like to say we are the home for anyone and everyone who has an interest in rural health care. Our job here, or my job here in Washington, is to be that voice, along with all of you, um, to make sure the policymakers at the federal level have a good sense of what's happening in our rural communities and what they need to do to address some of those concerns. You know, um, now that we've established who you are and what you do, and we, we've asked you this before, but it's important to our listeners just so they get to know you a little bit better. And it's really around one question. We call it the why. Uh, and I want to know, our listeners want to know, you know, what motivates you and what gets you up out of bed in the morning to do the work that you do, which is, you know, it's, it's very stressful. It's, it's very challenging. It's tiring. Uh, getting people to listen to you is tough unless you pay them like I do here. Uh, you know, they're called staff, but congressional <laughs> leaders and politicians, you know, they're Technically, not. Technically, we all pay them and that's the problem. We do. <laughs> yeah. The problem is, many. yeah, the problem is, yeah, we, we can withdraw our payment to them and they'll still be fine. Uh, but at the we end of the day. We might go to jail. But. Yeah, we, right. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you know, um, what motivates you and, and why do you do what you do? Yeah, JJ, I, I love this question and I, and your listeners may be, um, 
may be able to predict um, if they've heard me before, but um, you know, I am a, a fifth generation Montanan in the sense of um, not, not all of those five generations were born in Montana. My mom was actually born in Eastern Washington, but her sister was born in Montana, but um, fifth generation in my family to have lived in Western Montana. And um, it's important to me, it's home. And I firmly believe that you know, where you live shouldn't determine your ability to access healthcare. That's right. Um, That's right. And we just, uh, you know, out here in Washington, uh, I think that common sense um, and really like core value, it gets lost in all of the chaos. And so Mm -hmm. that's my job is to bring, and that's what, and that is why I I get out of bed every morning and, and um, really want to make sure that, I, I don't think that lawmakers go into situations thinking I am going to, you know, really take it to rural America. Yeah. I just think that it's not at the top of their mind. They don't understand the situation folks are living in. They forget. And mm-hmm. so that's our job. Our job is to be there and remind them and educate them and then help them come up with solutions that are feasible for everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that is is key, what you said about helping them come up with feasible solutions, because the last thing you want is those decisions to be made in D.C. by people who are so far removed from the reality of rural health care that it's like this actually doesn't work in practice or doesn't, you know, make sense in practice. So having you guys there to kind of bring our voice forward um, is really important. So let's talk through kind of what's going on right now. Um, the current legislative landscape specifically for rural health care, what should hospitals be aware of and what do you expect to see before the end of the year? Um, well, as we have this conversation, it is um, Thursday, September 14th. I think we're going to get this out in the next uh, couple of weeks. But yep. Life in Washington moves fast. It, so does. <laughs> it may be outdated, but uh, I will tell you, um, man, there is a lot on Congress's plate right now. Um, and it is entirely unclear how much of it is going to get done. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, the the big um, looming deadline that folks are talking about right now is uh, funding for the federal government for the fiscal year 2024, mm-hmm. which starts on October 1st. So just a couple of days now, it feels like. Um, and the concern there is that we still don't really have a good sense, especially on the House side, of what they're considering to be part of their proposed package for FY24. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think that's that's gathering a lot of attention right now. And it's important because a lot of those programs um, really are kind of critical to the day-to-day operation for facilities in our rural areas. And that's certainty of knowing the funding is coming is important. Um, So appropriations is always a big focus and what's going to happen with the federal budget. But we've got a couple of other important bills that um, or legislative packages that are in the works. Um, One of those is farm bill. So Mm -hmm. the farm bill is reauthorized every five years. Um, Last one was done in 2018. There are a handful of that bill is really big, has a lot of important stuff in it, and there are a handful of programs that will not be able to operate um, if Congress doesn't do something by October 1st, again, because the authorization expires. Right. So we see the Farm Bill as an opportunity to really um, improve healthcare access for agricultural workers and their families, 
um, think about how we're building rural economic and community development and just making sure that we're enhancing the quality of life for folks living in rural communities. So farm bill is one we got to at least some kind of short term, we got to get something going. Um, there's another um, bill that's or package of legislation that's expiring called um, PAPA or the Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness Act. This one is one that's existed for years, but obviously has kind of renewed attention um, post COVID-19, if we mm -hmm. call ourselves post COVID-19. Um, and it's got key things for um, programs like medical stockpiles, um, you know, kind of outbreak relief um, and incident data for facilities. We're really advocating for the authorization of an office of rural health within the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention hmm. um, within that package so that we don't see kind of the disparities we saw in rural communities when, when and if we face another outbreak. So PAPA is up for renewal and needs to be addressed. And then we've got authorization or reauthorization of mandatory funding for critical safety net programs like the National Health Service Corps, Teaching Health Center, GME, and the Community Health Center program. And among all of that, there's a lot of conversation that's been happening around workforce. And we've seen a couple of good workforce packages or um, kind of proposed in various stages um, that would really tackle issues around graduate medical education, um, you know, nurse training and placement and, and really help us get creative about how we're going to solve um, some of our workforce challenges. So lots in the nether, lots being discussed. Um, you know, I would really hope that by the end of the year, we see at least short term extensions, you know, year long extensions for some of these programs. Um, but there's there's a lot of distraction happening right now, too. So we're hoping that they can buckle down and, and get their job done here. You know, Carrie, um, one of the challenges that I personally face as CEO is knowing when to share with my staff and to a certain extent my board of trustees and even physicians um, mm -hmm. what's coming out of Washington or even the work that your group uh, in your organization is working on. You know, and I want to be careful not to, um, you know, to give them too much. I don't want them to feel like I'm not giving them enough. In fact, this morning was our annual medical staff meeting. I spoke for an hour, uh, sadly, and talking about, probably to their chagrin, talking about the landscape. And, you know, it's it's a delicate balance, um, you know, when you start talking about 340B cuts and this cut and that cut and this is going on, and then they don't come to fruition. And then you're like, oh, did I just set us up? Did, what? So, okay, the question then is, in your expertise, uh, the question I would have is, when is it appropriate uh, and I guess when we do get that information, whether it is from you, uh, the NRHA, or if it's from Washington themselves, um, you know, what should we be doing as hospital executives to communicate those changes? And is there a timeline in your opinion? Is there, when is the mechanism actually just, when does a lever switch and we should just go to the staff and say, this is bad, call your legislature? Can you help us understand that? Yeah. It's a great question. And, and um, you know, there are different points in the process where it's important to kind of raise your voice and then to prepare for what's changing and what's coming. So um, on the legislative front, I think it is important to watch kind of what 
we're seeing in terms of hearings happening on Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. Like, what are the members talking about? Where do they seem to have their energy and interest? And then obviously, um, as potential or draft legislation comes out, kind of making sure that you are a sounding board and a resource for your elected officials on how that's going to impact you. Um, and I think a great example of that is uh, recently we've been hearing um, all, all spring, there were several um, hearings around price transparency, yes. around the cost of care um, with a focus on hospitals, among others. And then, uh, JJ, you pointed out, you know, kind of looking at the 340B program. So clearly, as we're watching, I think it's really important to be aware of what conversations are happening. Yes. Um, You know, that's when my job um, is to really be working with the committees to make sure we've got folks in those hearings and speaking on behalf of rural America um, and that the staff and the members are asking the right questions yeah. of those folks to really understand the impact. Mm-hmm. And then once we start, and then that, and that's a great time for you all to be doing relationship building with your members of Congress, reaching out saying, Hey, this is, this is, this is going to kill us if you move forward with something in this area, or this yeah. is how um, site neutrality actually works on the ground for rural facilities. Um and then once we actually have like bill text and language, that's when we can really get into kind of more of our written campaign and specificity about what, what we want to see and tweaked and changed. Yeah. The other piece I would say is really important to be watching is on the regulatory side. So legislation mm-hmm. critical, you know, obviously big guideposts for where we're going, but the devil is in the details, it sure man. Is. And those regulations are critical to what you all then have to kind of abide by in the community. So we right now have a number of proposed regulations out. Um, Actually, the comments were due um, earlier this week, I actually think. Um, But, you know, for two of them, the outpatient physician or the outpatient um, PPS and then the physician fee schedule, there's actually some really great things in Mm -hmm. there um, Mm -hmm. around opportunities for community health workers Mm -hmm. to do more in our communities, bringing in new folks who can provide behavioral health services, and then um, kind of a new opportunities within the behavioral health space for intensive outpatient services. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, there's a reg out right now, comments aren't due until next month, but on minimum staffing standards in (laughs) long-term care facilities, which I'm sure you all have heard about. We were waiting with bated breath to see what actually would happen. And while CMS has proposed um, a delay in implementing those standards, they're still proposing to hold rural facilities to standards like 24-7 RNs on site and staffing ratios so that many of work. us aren't going to be able to meet. It's not going to work. It's not right. going to work. There's right. just not a workforce for right. it. And, nope. and we need to be raising our collective voice to tell them that and to tell mm-hmm. them what that impact is going to be. And NRHA actually has a, a draft template comment letter out for folks that you can use to help frame that conversation for you, right? So you can put in your own story, Good. but you have some Good. of the words for you. Mm-hmm. We hold listening sessions and it's important to tell CMS and the executive branch um, that, but it's also important to let your members of Congress know because they also have influence and control um, over CMS. So that was a really long answer, but hopefully it gives you a sense, you know, 
I think there are many opportunities to engage um, wherever we are in the process. And again, that's kind of my job here at NRIJ is to help help you all figure out where to make those connections so that our voice, our collective voice is even stronger. Can, can I ask a question? You know, one of the things that you talk about and you talked about last time, and I really want to vet this out a little bit, is the concept of, uh, you know, the period in time in which Congress allows comments. Mm-hmm. Can you explain to our listeners what is what does that mean? What do comments mean? Who can make them? Do they have to be directed towards a specific organization, or can the layman, can a hospital CEO in a, in in Arkansas, put their comments in? Or can you tell us that process? Yeah. So there are a couple of different um, times during both the legislative cycle and the regulatory cycle where. Um, members of Congress or the administration will actually put out a formal kind of, this is what we're proposing, or this is an area we want to talk about, let us know your thoughts. Um, and it's a little bit different, obviously, for the two different bodies. So for Congress, we have seen more and more requests for information um, that where they are exploring a topic and really want to hear from the field ideas and impacts and kind of what life looks like right now. And there actually is one of the things I wanted to lift up is that um, the House Ways and Means Committee actually last week released an RFI um, specifically looking at um, what what we can do to address rural healthcare challenges. And it's asking for feedback on everything from um, wage index to rural hospital payment and designations, issues around site neutrality, issues around workforce, and issues around innovation and tech. I'll get you guys that comment link. Those comments are due in early October. That's a way to kind of direct the mm-hmm. focus of where we are telling Congress they should go. Good, good. In, 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 in the other half of it is once the law is passed and CMS is either updating or putting a new regulation into place, they have a 60-day comment period typically when they release their proposal and they ask for feedback on it. And that's usually when the nitty-gritty is, is kind of laid out. In both those scenarios, Anyone and everyone can comment and should comment. I understand, though, it can be very daunting, especially mm-hmm. on the regulatory front, because you've got like a thousand page rule. Who's going to have time to read and understand that that yeah, bad boy? Right. And again, that's why we're here. We've been trying to do more and more comment letters on those regulations that we think are going to have the greatest impact mm-hmm. so that you kind of have the bare bones of what the issue is and what we're asking for in terms of a change. And then you fill in kind of your story and anything else you want to add to that. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that insight. It's oftentimes we hear about the comment section, the comment period. So it's great really to know what it means. And ultimately you're assuring us that it doesn't, it's not in vain that that information is. It is not in vain. Okay. No, I mean, I can tell you as a former fed, I never was in CMS, but we were, I was in the federal office of rural health policy and worked with CMS. You know, we would tell them an issue is an issue and they would say, Oh, well, you know, we didn't get any comments about that. We, we haven't heard from <laughs> mm. the field that that's wow. a problem. Wow. So they so were, they it, were looking for it. It really like hearing the voice um, really can make a difference. Okay. Well, that's great. Wow. Yeah, that is good to hear, especially when, you know, we're all really busy and we've got stuff going on and we see the yeah. email come through and we're like, oh, I really need to do that. And then it it 
emphasizes the importance of yeah. taking out the time to be a part of that process. Mm-hmm. And you guys make it so easy to do, um, which is, of course, very helpful as well. Um, so tell us about, well, so I have a little bit of a different question than what we already had planned here, because I wanted to ask oh. about there are a couple bills specific to rural health care, rural hospitals that have been out there and been on the table for many years um, and many different legislative sessions that have not moved really. Um, one of them is, I believe, it is it the is Grassley's bill, Grassley's. the Save Rural Hospitals it is. Act. It is. Um, and then there's a similar one, I think, in the you know other chamber. But there are some of these bills that they come forward every year, but nothing seems to happen on them. They don't seem to gain traction. Um, and and I think part of one of those is, for example, making permanent the disproportionate share hospital program or Medicare designated. Uh, or what's what's the other one called? Oh my gosh, MD MDH MD something like yeah, that. Yeah, Medicare dependent hospitals. Yes, Medicare dependent volume thank you. hospitals. Yeah, yeah, LVA. Yeah. Thank you. I was like having al- alphabet soup in my head. Um, yeah, I know, it's but easy to you do. know things like that that don't seem to get off the ground. And is that a lack of you know attention from the field pushing our own legislators to say, hey? You need to get with Grassley and look at this bill, or you need to get with so and so and look at this bill. You guys need to get this moving, or is it an issue of the pay for is not there, or or is it just a combination of those things? It's a combination. Um, one of the things that I've learned in this job is there's this constant te- tension of like a hurry up, make sure you're doing it, um, put on the pressure, while also realizing that it can take years and years mm-hmm. and years to mm-hmm. get some of these policies passed. And introduction is just the first step. Um, and and it is an, an issue, at that bill in particular, um, and getting the MDH and low volume um, made permanent, and then the rebasing for sole community hospitals. Um, that issue in particular, it, it's a combination of the, that constant drumbeat of impact. That's, an, that's a topic where when we talk to people, the easy solution for easy solution for Congress is to just continue to extend those programs, right. kick the can down the hill, like, you know, we'll do another two years, another two years. And, um, you know, the message we say to folks all the time is, that's great. We appreciate that. And thank you. But that lack of certainty makes long term planning very difficult for these facilities and makes it very difficult for them to then succeed, um, you know, in a way that we want these facilities to be viable. So we need a permanent fix. I was actually talking to someone on the Hill about this yesterday. There's a lot of interest in both those designations and making it permanent right now. I heard um, something like a $7 billion price tag to do it. Wow. So the cost and the pay for that you talked about, Rachel, is frequently what keeps us from having those be made permanent. So we are probably looking at a situation where there has to be some kind of significant uh, uh, enough change in healthcare to create the savings that would then allow, you know, kind of the pay for to make that kind of change. Mm -hmm. And so much of what happens here in Washington is timing and making Mm -hmm. the stars align and making sure that when those stars are starting to come out, that we are right there putting our like our ask in front of them. So it's the one that's picked up. Yeah. Great question. Speaking of the stars aligning, tell us about some of the uh, recent victories that NRHA has seen um, with its latest efforts for 
rural health care, whether it's regulatory or legislative? What's your team been celebrating lately? Well, I would say one of the things we are the most excited about is, I mean, we have had, there is a good focus, I think, right now um, on rural health care and an awareness of where we are, both in terms of uh, facility and, and viability and the uptick of closures, as well as the workforce challenges. I think mm-hmm. those are those are things that when we go in to talk with folks, I'm not telling them anything new when I remind them about that. And you can see that in the, the RFI that just came out to see like how we can address some of these solutions. Another great um, sign is the, the launch of the Congressional Bipartisan Rural Health Caucus on the House side. Um, which is actually, I just got um, the date and time confirmed. Um, they are holding their kickoff meeting next week on the 20th. Um, NRHA will be there to be part of the agenda and kick off the activities. But the caucus, those kind of gatherings are a great way to kind of educate members of Congress about what's facing rural, um, make sure that those pressing issues are then part of the conversation and for them to really come together to connect um, and have the focus on issues like the, the bill we were just talking about. Um, so we're very excited that the Senate has been active and has a caucus that's been working um, and, and working pretty well, but we're, we hadn't had a lot of momentum on the House side. So we are very excited to have that group up and running and we'll need all of you to yes. encourage your um, representatives to, to join the fight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My favorite line from Jerry Maguire. Show me the money. Uh, And uh, that's that's the signature by which I live my rural CEO life, because everything, believe it or not, sadly so, it is what it is, boils down to can we afford to offer that service? Can we afford to continue that service? Uh, Everything is based on reimbursement. And ultimately, it's all about the money. And so, Carrie, you know, the opportunity for you today is, you know, rural CEOs across this country are battling uh, some of the most difficult times in our history, in our history. All right. We have a hundred and some year history, 107 years here, but it's a worse time in our history. Uh, And that is because inflation's high, cost of employees and labor is high, uh, reimbursement is low. um, Supply chain is high. Supply chain is high. And we're being outpaced, you know, so the growth is good. In some areas, some hospitals have zero growth, but we've had 9% growth. Um, But even at 9% growth, it's outpaced by, you know, everything else, uh, you know, almost double what that is. And so hospitals are losing money. Hospitals are closing um, at record in alarming numbers right now. Um, A couple of hospitals in our area over the last three weeks announced either purchased uh, agreements from other big systems or even closures Mm -hmm. uh, in, in in our area. And it's very concerning, you know, to hear guests on this program who talk about, you know, the number of hospitals that are at risk of closing in the country, uh, those that are at immediate risk. And so that all just revolves around what is Washington doing with reimbursement and the money back to mm-hmm. hospitals. And and we're starting to hear a little bit more chatter with this as the big systems are suffering what us little guys have been suffering for decades, truly. Mm-hmm. And now they're like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, uncompensated care? Wait a minute, Medicaid expansion and no redetermination? That means we're eating those costs? What? 
oh, the payers aren't coming to the table, even though all these expenses are all increased. They're now experiencing what we have battled every day in healthcare. And so with that as the setup for this question, um, explain the upcoming budget bill. Um, what what do you feel, what do you as, a, as an organization expect to see in results from this bill? And, you know, the, I'm going to hone in just a little bit more. What will be the impact to rural hospitals in your mind or rural healthcare in general? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. And um, man, I wish I could. Uh, I mean, I guess we are recording this. I will take <laughs> that segment and walk around the halls of Washington playing your voice, JJ, telling um, right yeah. the truth to power. Um, yeah, we know it's 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 daunting um, to think about, you know, kind of what what Congress needs to do um, here. So the the budget bill and the the FY24 appropriations. Um, lays out discretionary funding for the next fiscal year. So that is um, for a lot of folks uh, in the HHS and rural healthcare world and, and rural hospital world. Those are a lot of our kind of grant programs, programs like our Medicare flexibility program, our SHIP dollars that provide important wraparound support. Um, for what you're doing in the in your facilities, mm-hmm. as well as, and I know the, the truth of what you all live, um, you cobble together money from you know payer reimbursement, grant dollars, everything else to offer the services you do. And so yep. that piece in particular are the critical programs that um, you all used for things like workforce development and behavioral health services and maternal health and SDOH and everything like that. So um, where we are right now is the the House re- uh, uh, released some high-level numbers um, that uh, for rural health, we're good. For the rest of um, discretionary spending and for HHS, um, broadly, we're not good. They were big mm-hmm. cuts. But mm-hmm. rural health seems to have fared okay, although we don't have a lot of detail. We know that there have been increases for the FLEX program from the FY23 levels and resources um, for state offices of rural health and for our rural residency planning and development program, which that program on a side, if your folks don't know about that, um, that program has, uh, it's a it's a pilot program. We're working to get it authorized. It has created um it has created close to 500 um, GME slots in rural yeah, areas yeah, across the country yeah. since incredible. 2018. It's incredible. it's incredible. It's incredible. And we want to make sure that it continues to get funded. Yeah. Um, so looks good on the House side. On the Senate side, we saw increases as well um, in programs like the Rural Communities Opioid Response Program, or RCOR, which is trying to tackle some of our really critical uh, opioid and addiction issues, as well as funding for family medicine obstetric training um, and some and funding for our, our moms or maternal um, services programs. So um, again, really important. I, I'm very encouraged by these levels. I yeah. think the fact that the federal office has done well um, in both bodies um, bodes well. But you just, you know, we, we, we can't give up the fight yet. We got to keep letting people know um, that our voice needs to be heard in the, in the, in the space. 
Yeah. I think for the next for the for the foreseeable future here, we're going to see a short term CSCR. Hopefully, that there won't be a government shutdown, um, and then you know the the longer um, battle will happen over October, November, December as we get a, a yeah. final um, budget in place. Good, good. So as we um, kind of wrap up here today, one one other question I have is. How do we make sure that the the payment and the reimbursement issue stays front and center? Because one of the biggest concerns I think I have is that there are so many different ways to look at the challenges that rural healthcare is facing. Mm -hmm. But how many of those could be solved or at least significantly mitigated were the reimbursement issue fixed, being that we're not being paid what it costs us to provide care? So if that were improved, would we need all these other wraparound programs? Would we need to be looking at, you know, extra funding for, um, you know, EMS training? You know, there are all these other issues that are really important, but how much of them could be solved if Congress would do something or CMS would do something about the reimbursement Mm -hmm. issue? How do we keep that front and center while not letting these other issues totally disappear, but knowing like reimbursement is still the bottom line of all of it. Mm-hmm. 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 And, um, and my team and I were having this conversation this week as we were as we were talking about the opportunity with that um, request for information on rural health care that the House has out right now. It's yeah. like we could draw a picture of what this should look like. And to your point, Rachel, I'll, you know, 99% of it comes down to getting an adequate payment level to be able to offer services um, like we should be able to in our communities. But to get from where we are now to that is feels almost impossible, which is why we have all of these little kind of tweaks here and there right. um, around the edges. And it, and it can be very, a very frustrating conversation for all involved. And, and, and I know that. Um, so I think, you know, the budget bill I just talked about, those appropriation packages seem to be one of the few big omnibus packages that actually are going through Congress these days, which is mm-hmm. a shift over time that we have seen. So while those packages, the federal budget, the discretionary budget doesn't tend to drive um, reimbursement through Medicare and Medicaid, which are mandatory programs, it is critical that we are continuing to have the conversations and offering solutions um, when we're talking to our lawmakers um, and just it, just that steady drumbeat. And, and I will say the other place that we are hopeful, um, although still uncertain, is we are seeing innovations come out of the administration. Um, there is a new uh, payment model, the AHEAD model, Advancing All-Payer Health Equity Approaches mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Development. That's a total cost of care model that builds off of what we saw in the Pennsylvania rural health model. Mm-hmm. Um, that was released earlier this month. Um, and we're hopeful that states and communities, I know when you guys are, you know, strapped for time and resource, the last thing you want to do is walk down the innovation aisle. But um, in some ways, getting strong rural representation in those kind of demonstrations to figure out what works, and then we can have Congress pick that up, is an essential piece to this broader puzzle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So lastly, um, how can our listeners who are involved in rural health care, who are rural hospitals themselves, how can they get involved with NRHA to voice their needs and issues um, in rural health care regulation and legislation? Yeah. 
So our website, um, ruralhealth.us backslash advocate has more resources than you would ever want <laughs> <laughs> on all of these issues. And we, we don't, we don't have a paywall. Our member, you know, everything we do is out on that website. And so while we would encourage you to join NRHA so that I'm hearing your collective voice a little bit um, stronger. Um, we, we would love for people to engage with us through listening sessions. Like I talked about uh, that come out on all of the major rules through our templates, through our advocacy campaigns. Mm -hmm. We've got one pagers you can take to Congress. We've got a legislative tracker that has all of the bills that we've worked on with members of Congress that you can, you can help us endorse and get the word out. Um, and then we've got things like our weekly roundup that go every out every Friday do, that yeah. talk about the legislative and regulatory opportunities and activities in Washington. So, um, or, you know, the easiest way to probably do it is just shoot me an email, but you're also, um, you know, any way, anytime we can get of yours, we would love it and would love to work with you all to, um, to tackle these challenges we're facing. And so for our listeners today, uh, if you're interested in partnering with the National Health Association, I would highly recommend it. Yes. Uh, you know, the voice has to be stronger than us individually, and the collective voice is carried by uh, the NRHA and the work that they do um, across this country and uh, trying to motivate our congressional leaders uh, into some action. And then just certainly being that voice of reason uh, for the rural community, I think is so important, Rachel. I think it's uh, it's imperative that hospitals listening today look at joining. Right, right. I totally agree. And also, I would like to plug the grassroots calls that you guys do as well. If yeah, you're a member of NRHA and you're not attending those, they are recorded when you can't attend them live. Yeah. Um, but those are really helpful to kind of keep a pulse on what's going on and where you can plug in and get engaged. But it's a great way to stay informed um, that Carrie and her team put together so beautifully on a, on a regular basis. So we uh, we this is our official Hillsdale Hospital endorsement of all the services yes. from NRHA's ah, advocacy team. And, <laughs> and again, like if you're an individual out there and I mean, most of that is all available to you um, uh, without membership. Um, so don't tell uh, Alan Morgan, our CEO, that yeah. I'm saying this, but <laughs> I will take an advocate wherever and however I can get exactly. them. If you remember, it just gets to you a little bit more directly. Oh, you don't yeah. have to dig quite as much. But um, exactly. I, I would love um, uh, more partners, um, uh, as many partners as I can get. Excellent. So you heard it today. Uh, thank you for the hard work that you do on behalf of hospitals like Hillsdale. We appreciate your partnership uh, and the work that is being done uh, every day to keep our communities safe and healthy. Once again, we want to thank you for joining us today on Rural Health Rising. And before we close, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. We want to know what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life and round three, <laughs> round three. And I was going to say, you know what? If you do need to repeat yourself, that's fine. You can remind us of the story. But, you know, obviously five generations, Montana, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. like we that's, know about watching the the wild horses out the window. Yeah, that's God's. Country. I know I that was amazing. That the yeah. way you described it in your first episode. Yes, getting up. But I can't remember what that. you said the second time. So if that one's a repeat, who will know? Uh, I can't. I can't remember. I either. think they were <laughs> wild something. <laughs> wild. I don't know. Wild Goats? turkeys. Wild oh, turkeys. Bears. They were okay. There's always they were, something. They were right something. There. there were something. Um. 
You know, I I don't know that it's um, unique. I think it's probably what a lot of people love about rural America. um, You know, we have uh, about an hour and a half out of my hometown. There is an area where um, our family has kind of homesteaded for years, um, like like 100 years, kind of like goes goes way back kind of thing. And Mm Um, you know, going there and being kind of on the plains, around the mountains, looking at all of it, there is just such a connection, right? You just, you feel mm-hmm. real, you, you just do. feel like you're home, like you are connected you do. to the place in a way that, uh, you know, don't tell anybody, but I've been out in DC, unfortunately, 20 <laughs> years now. Uh, um, I keep 20. saying I'm leaving next year. Wow. I know. I know you find you find a nice Kansas Kansas boy and you get married and the next thing you know you're still here. So um, that's hilarious. But just that like sense of place and connection to home and the people and the land, um, you know, it's a real thing for me, uh, and awesome. I just am so appreciative of it every time I get to go home and and be among the trees and the mountains and the the big sky out there in Montana. Well, that's great. Well, that certainly is rule. You can't get much more than that. So uh, again, thank you so much for joining us today on Rural Health Rising. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest. So be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by JJ Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit RuralHealthRising.com.